Good morning. China rises. The Communist Party meets Xi Jinping, the heir apparent. Ukraine attacks and America's killer drones. Trump defamation and free speech is trust on her way out. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Thursday morning, October 20th, 2022. Russian President Vladimir Putin declared martial law in four regions of Ukraine. He says are now part of Russia. Donetsk and Luhansk, two breakaway republics, and the Kherson and Zaporizhia regions all voted in Russian supervised elections to become part of Russia. Putin also increased the alert in Crimea, annexed from Ukraine in 2014, and several bordering areas of Russia. Putin also signed decrees guaranteeing basic supplies for thousands of new draftees. Meanwhile, it appears a battle may be shaping up for the city of Kherson in Ukraine's southeast. A city of more than 250,000 people has been held by Russia since early in the war. Observers say many family members of Russian officials have been leaving the city. The new chief of Russian forces in Ukraine is Army General Sergei Sorovikin. He described the situation as tense around Kherson, adding the army may have to make difficult decisions. Sorovikin assumed overall command of Russian troops participating in the military operation earlier in October. He commanded Russian forces in Chechnya and Syria and is highly decorated. His nickname is General Armageddon, and his elevation to command has coincided with an increase of aerial attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure. Meanwhile, China, another U.S. rival, wraps up its 20th Communist Party Congress this weekend with President Xi Jinping poised for another five-year term, heading up one of the largest and most powerful nations on earth. The Congress is held twice each decade. Xi opened the event with a speech touting success against COVID-19, domestic order, Hong Kong, and building China's military. Regarding Taiwan, the island nation China claims as a province, Xi said China would never renounce force, but preferred peace. In related news, State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel says the U.S. was coming up with new ways to speed modern weapons technology to Taiwan in event of an invasion by China. The U.S. is looking uh, at all options on the table to ensure that the rapid transfer of defense capabilities to Taiwan can take place uh, as swiftly as possible. And consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act, as you know, we have made available various services and defense articles uh, for Taiwan security. And uh, the swift provisions uh, of these technologies and these services, uh, we believe, are essential uh, to Taiwan security. The Chinese economy, like most of the world, has been slowing down, and there's been talk the world's second biggest economy might even collapse. James Bradley is author of The China Mirage and several other books about America and the East. His book about his father's experiences at Iwo Jima, Flag of Our Fathers, was made into a blockbuster film. Bradley spoke with the news from Vietnam. They view Taiwan as part of China. They're sincere in that they would like their brother Taiwan to come back to the fold without any military action. And it will be the United States that will determine whether there's military action there or not. In terms of exactly what is happening in this Congress, Paul, I was hoping you would tell me. This is very secretive. There's 2,600 delegates to the conference. I doubt if the majority of them know exactly what all the plans are. I called a friend in Hong Kong who said after the Congress, he thinks that the borders will be open. I don't know if you know, 
Hong Kong and Shenzhen are right next to each other, and the borders have been closed for three years. And I said, why? And he said, because the no COVID policy is really no foreigner policy. My friend in Hong Kong said that President Xi got tired of the foreign meddling in Hong Kong with the riots. And so no COVID is really a no foreigner policy until they have this Congress and until his power is solidified. That's one opinion from one person. And other than that, Paul, I'm wondering what's happening in China, just like everybody else. I'm told the Chinese economy is on the verge of collapse. Is that true? If you read uh, Time magazine, the Chinese economy has been on the verge of collapse since 1949. I'm serious. I wrote a book about it called The China Mirage. So we're always predicting Chinese collapse. There's 1.5 billion Chinese. Now, do they have some economic problems? Wow. Huge debt, just like the Federal Reserve. They printed money. They printed too much money. Do they have real estate problems? Yes. The most indebted company in the world is Evergrande, a Chinese real estate company. The Chinese economy is going to fall apart for about the last 50 years, we've been told. This current real estate problem, I've been following it for two years. And I'm just amazed that things are ticking over. But look at who's the number one manufacturer in the world. Let's say America and China tomorrow have just a Great Depression, both economies stop, America ends up with the airports that look like third world countries. We've got uh, tents in the middle of San Francisco and New York. If you go to China, the infrastructure is brand spanking new. If both economies go down, China ends up with a excellent infrastructure from which to rebuild. What about the future of the U.S.-Chinese uh, relationship? Let's look at history. General MacArthur said to John F. Kennedy, any American who wants to fight a land war in Asia is out of his mind. So let's look at the land wars. We fought on the wrong side of the Chinese Civil War. Mao Zedong beat the American military in the Chinese Civil War. Vietnam, how did we do? Korea, how did we do? It's outrageous and ridiculous that we're going to take on the Chinese in any military confrontation. Not that they're supermen, but there's only 320 million Americans. There's four or five times more Chinese. If we have to fight the Chinese in Taiwan or on the land, we've got to go 6,000 miles. Our ability to fight in Asia Come on, let's look at history and maybe there's another way. James Bradley is author of The China Mirage and several other books about America and the East. The United States, along with France and the United Kingdom, has called for a special United Nations Security Council briefing later today on charges drones used in attacks on Ukraine this week came from Iran. Both Iran and Russia denied Tehran had supplied weapons to the Kremlin. A 2015 Security Council resolution bans the long-range use of drones. Power plants and civilian areas in Ukraine have been struck by dozens of kamikaze drones that dive into their targets and explode on contact. State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel confirmed the closed-door meeting.
And yes, the U.S. will join uh, the British and French in raising this issue at a closed meeting uh, where the Security Council will hear from an expert briefer on the transfer of UAVs from Iran to Russia. As we've seen over the course of the past months, there has ample evidence that Russia is using UAVs in, from Iran in cruel and deliberate attacks against the people of Ukraine, including against civilians and critical civilian infrastructure. Uh, we will convey these grave concerns uh, about Russia's acquisition of these UAVs from Iran in clear violation of UN Security Council 2231. That's the State Department spokesperson, Vedan Patel. Drones have been widely used by the United States and Israeli military. Armed with $150,000 Hellfire missiles, the weapons have been used effectively in assassinations. The U.S. reports its drones, though, have killed between 8 and 16,000 people, including more than 1,000 children. In a letter to U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, peace activists Nick Motern and Kathy Kelly of Ban Killer Drones have called for a ban against the use of the weapon. Motern spoke with the news. It's an easier way to do a drone strike because you don't have to worry about bringing the drone back. You use your optical camera to search out your target, and then you just crash it into it. Iranian drones that are sort of delta wing drones, that's about six-foot wingspan. They cost about $20,000, according to some reports. A Hellfire missile that the U.S. uses just liberally costs $150,000. Poor countries have figured out a way to create extremely dangerous, terrifying weapons at much less cost, in some ways much more portability. And you said the Hellfire missile. Now I'm hearing that the United States wants to send drones with Hellfire missiles to Ukraine. There's been quite a bit of debate about that. Our most advanced Reaper and Gray Eagle drones for the use of the Ukrainians, which would allow them to carry the war very far inside Russia. People just feel that the drone is a short-range assassin. But what happens is, that because you don't have to send your troops into a certain area, you feel that you can go attack within that area. That's like cancer spreading, because once you've attacked, then you've created a situation where you're going to have more war, more suffering. It was an unforeseen way of escalating the war. The U.S. did not want to send troops in to conduct basically colonial operations. So the drones were a good substitute. And I think we have to remember this whole drone warfare program of the United States was developed in attacks against people of color around the world, Mm -hmm. Mideast, East Asia, Africa. Thousands and thousands of people of color have died. It never got to the U.N. to discuss until today because we have Europeans dying, white people dying because of drones sent in supposedly from Iran, but Really, it's a situation of how weapons are developed for use against people of color, and then it all comes home to root in these European white people wars. And we can expect to see weaponized drones used in the United States by people who might be insurrectionists. You used to have the highest technology is now in the hands of anybody of civilians, anybody who's got a couple hundred bucks. There really hasn't been any public discussion or examination of, with the exception of one country, which is Germany. And for many, I'd say at least six years, 
the German parliament would not agree to arm drones that they were leasing from Israel. But when it came and it would be a Ukraine war, all these pressures to not arm drones in Germany tended to evaporate as Germany has been under more and more pressure from the U.S. and other European countries to send more weapons into Ukraine and to really become a formidable military force in Europe. Is the horse out of the barn on this one? There's no way of putting this back. It's so cheap, so easy to get. This is the new reality. There is a way to have an international treaty to ban weaponized drones in the same way that there's now a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to go along with it. Countries that are on the receiving end of this kind of warfare will more and more be opposed to the use of weaponized drones. That's why we keep at it. Very evil force in the world that people just can't accept because it keeps coming back and back where people say we don't want more drone attacks. And I think more and more people are having another look at it because of this, this Ukraine mess who never thought about it before. Drones have spread to many countries. They've been used in Ethiopia in its war with Tigray, Gaza, and in Yemen. Campaigners say drone warfare is not bringing peace, but extending war. In national news, former Vice President Mike Pence bemoaned the growing intolerance for opposing views in U.S. politics yesterday. His words came as a few dozen students walked out on his speech at Georgetown University. It seems to me that having served many years in Washington, leaders in this, in this nation's capital have never been more out of touch more intent on imposing their agenda or walking out on people that might have a different point of view. Pence, possibly eyeing a presidential bid in 2024, spoke earlier at the Heritage Foundation on the future of conservatives. But at Georgetown, a lively banter ensued as a student asked about Pence's role on January 6, 2021, at the U.S. Capitol is why haven't you extended that bravery to publicly denouncing the violence of January 6th, as was condoned by President Trump, in order to scourge the Republican Party of Trump's anti-democratic, anti-freedom lies that you know to not be true. And I'm humbled by your assessment of my conduct. January 6th was a tragic day. But thanks to the courage of law enforcement at the Capitol and federal law enforcement, the violence was quelled. And we reconvened the Congress the very same day. And we completed our duty under the Constitution of the United States and the laws of this country. There was a lot going on that day, so you might have missed it, but... I made some remarks before the United States Senate when we reconvened. The first thing I did was condemn the violence. I said violence never wins, freedom wins. Former Vice President Mike Pence. Pence didn't directly mention former President Trump. Newly released documents show Federal Judge Davis O. Carter found former President Donald Trump and his political allies understood 
Allegations of widespread voter fraud in Georgia were false, but pushed them anyway. Judge Carter, in his 18-page opinion stemming from a case involving Trump ally John Eastman, said several emails released in that case show Trump participated in a knowing representation of voter fraud numbers in Georgia, trying to overturn the election results. Eastman wrote a key memo providing a legal argument for Trump's attempt to seize power on January 6, 2021. And in more related news, early this month, Trump sued CNN for a second time, saying he was defamed by the news network. In 2020, he sued the New York Times, CNN the first time, and the Washington Post. These and other attempts were overturned by courts who said the famous 1964 Sullivan decision requires much greater proof when the subject of the alleged defamation is a public figure, protecting journalists and political gadflies alike. Retired judge and professor of constitutional laws Bill Blum his article, Trump's War on the First Amendment is Coming to the Supreme Court, is in the Progressive Magazine. Defamation at common law is a tort where you malign someone, you ridicule them in a significant way and damage them, damage their reputation. And traditionally, defamation lawsuits were left to the states to regulate in the United States. But then came along the civil rights movement, and this case, New York Times versus Sullivan, which involved a lawsuit brought by a police commissioner from Montgomery, Alabama. So he was a public official, a government employee, and he's suing the New York Times for defamation over an advertisement, an editorial advertisement, which wanted to raise funds for Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights activists who had been abused by police in Alabama. And What's the, the distinction? Issue... That was very interesting. You went by that. What's the distinction of him being a government employee suing? As the case came before the Supreme Court, the issue was, does the First Amendment afford some kind of constitutional protection against allegedly defamatory statements, libel or slander, libel being in writing, slander being spoken, or are we really stuck with the common law? And if there were no constitutional protections, then people who criticize public officials would take great risk in criticizing them, because if they were in any way inaccurate, even in minor respects, then they could become liable under the common law tort for defamation, and they could be ordered to pay damages, and that would have a chilling effect on free speech and public debate about important issues. So the Supreme Court developed this absence of malice test for defamation cases involving public officials. So if you were sued by a public official, the public official would have to prove that your statements, that you, that you made your statements with knowledge that they were false or with reckless disregard for the truth. That's the absence of malice standard. Yeah. So that case made it harder for public officials to win defamation lawsuits. So it's like the movie Absence of Malice. It's a, the difference between a public figure and a private person being defamed yes. when you say things about politically powerful people. It doesn't mean that the politically powerful and the wealthy won't sue you for defamation. They still will, but it's harder for them to win. 
And in states that have anti-slap lawsuits, the anti-slap lawsuit would be under a statute that provides for protection for public commentary. So slap means strategic lawsuit against public participation. So if Donald Trump sues someone, say, in California for defamation, we have an anti-slap statute which expedites the lawsuit and its resolution in court and applies that absence of malice standard quickly rather than allowing the case to drag out and cost the uh, speaker a lot of money. So this is one of the cases, one of the precedents that the conservatives on the court today are on record as targeting. They don't believe that there is any protection in the First Amendment, in the text, or in our history and tradition going way, way back, as they like to do in cherry-pick history, for the absence of malice standard. New York Times versus Sullivan one day will come before the court again, one day soon, and I think it will be overturned or significantly weakened. We just had the sad experience with Roe v. Wade, and we're going to have those kinds of experiences in other areas of the law, and this is one of them. It's very important. It's especially important for small presses, independent media. Again, it doesn't mean that public figures can't bring defamation lawsuits and in an appropriate case win them. They still can do that, but it's just harder for them to bring those cases and harder still for them to win. Bill Blum is a retired judge and professor of constitutional law. And finally, the United Kingdom's newly minted conservative prime minister, Liz Truss, is said to be teetering after two months and embarrassing failures in office. Today, Parliament echoed with hilarious recriminations as members of the government resigned or pushed out. Fired Home Secretary Suella Braverman launched a rant targeting what she called coalition chaos on the left and drawing a stinging rebuke from her liberal counterpart, Yvette Cooper. So yes, I'm afraid, Madam Deputy Speaker, it's the Labour Party, it's the Lib Dems, it's the coalition of chaos, it's the Guardian reading, to tofu-eating, wokarati, dare I say, the anti-growth coalition that we have to thank for the disruption that we are seeing on our roads today. Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper. Madam Deputy Speaker, I just, it's like astonishing. The, the Home Secretary actually talked about a coalition of chaos. <laughs> we can see it in front of us as we speak. In another confrontation, Trust traded barbs with Labour head Care Starmer. A book is being written about the Prime Minister's time in office. <laughs> Apparently it's going to be out by Christmas. Is that the release date or the title? I have been in office for just under two months and I have delivered the energy price guarantee. Mr Speaker, last week the Prime Minister ignored every question put to her. Yeah. Instead, she repeatedly criticised Labour's plan for a six-month freeze on energy bills. <laughs> this week, the Chancellor made it her policy. <laughs> How can she be held to account when she's not in charge? Yeah. Trust was forced to back down from sweeping tax cuts this week after the market collapsed, fearing a lack of competent leadership at the top of the UK government. 
And that's the news for Thursday morning, October 20th, 2022. The news was written by this reporter. You can hear the award-winning news at pauldurienzo.com. Thanks to Peace Action New York for their recognition. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.